Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Till Luca. And when I was looking for a publisher for a book I wanted to write, I was fortunate enough to have had two offers, one from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring Publishing small press in Scotland run by four great people who love books and who love our field. To this day, I'm glad I chose to go with Handspring because not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share with you, the Advanced Myofascial Techniques series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. Now, hi, and I'm Whitney Lowe, and Handspring's Moved to Learn webinars are free 45-minute broadcasts featuring their authors, including one with you, Till. Yep. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out, and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. And thanks again, Handspring, for sponsoring the Thinking Practitioner podcast. Mr. Luca, how are you today? I am very well, thank you. How about yourself, Mr. Lowe? Doing well, also. Um, winding down the summertime here in Central Oregon. Looking forward to breathing cleaner air, less fire smoke for us. So have you had bad fires out there this year? We have had fires, but most of the smoke we have is Oregon and California smoke. But it has yeah. been worse than ever. And uh, in fact, I turned off my air filter right before I turned on my recording today here in the room because right. we got smoke too. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> yep, we're smoking it up out here this summer. I bet it's been, you are. It's been You're a bad one. The source. Yeah. yeah, it's been it bad. It has been a bad one. So, maybe um, we could do a podcast like... on respiratory something or not. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Heck. So, I, you know, and with this uh, heat that we've had this year, we've had some horrendous heat waves out here in the Pacific Northwest that we generally don't have. And when I just think about those firefighters out there yes, um, in that equipment, um, in the middle of a fire when it's a hundred and, you know, eight degrees out there yes, and then, you know, something changes with the wind and you got to run for your life. Right. Uh, it's just amazing what some of those folks. Oh, uh, the do. stories. I had a yeah. client for a couple of years who was a smoke jumper out of Bend, out of your area or sisters or Redmond, whatever their yeah. big base is there. Yeah. And she would uh, parachute in and fight fires and then hike out carrying all her gear yeah. and stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. And if you are a smoke jumper or a wildland firefighter, you would want to make sure that you don't have any significant ankle or foot trauma. That's right. right. Yeah, absolutely. And you're probably at risk of uh, developing that as you land in your parachute with your hundred pound duffel bag full of shovels and everything else. Yeah. So we uh, let's, what do you think? We, we, should we talk about that today? Why don't we talk about that? What a great segue. Okay. So what? where do you want to start? What do you think is a good place to start about talking about the ankle and that kind of thing? Well, you know, this is a, a pretty complex biomechanical uh, region. So maybe we'll start, we'll talk a little bit about structure first of the foot and ankle complex, and then we'll talk about some of the mechanics in there and, and problems that we see happening and how we can intervene maybe with some helpful suggestions for people. How does that sound? Great. Yeah. So, um, you know, why don't we start talking, let's first off kind of do some maybe definition things. We talk about the ankle joint complex, mm. you know, and, and there's really quite a lot to it because we have to remember we have a distal tibiofibular joint, which is the joint where the fibula and tibia 
joined together distally, and then they're articulating with the talus that's down below them. So the so, that joint that you just mentioned, that's the that's the joint between the two leg bones down at the bottom end of the leg. And then yeah. right below that, you say it actually meets the foot proper. Yeah. The top bone of the so, foot there, the talus. Exactly. And the distal tibiofibular joint, we consider to be one called a syndesmosis joint. And that's one that does not have a great deal of movement to it. It's bound together by ligamentous uh, tissue, strong, very dense connective tissue that sort of holds those two bones together. So no joint capsule per se. Yeah, that's right. right. No yeah. joint capsule, but like a, a bound, you said, ligamentous relationship. And that's, yeah. I mean, in maybe I don't want to d- divulge too much, but that's, in, in my approach, I'm definitely thinking about that movement there because in my view, you want a little bit of spring there, but you don't want uh, too much. You want some, yeah. but not too much. Exactly, yeah. And uh, a couple of other relevant mechanical things um, about that particular joint complex. For those who are into uh, anatomical trivia, we'll put a little trivia piece in here. Um, for those who may not know or, or have paid attention, the talus is the only bone of the foot that does not have a tendon attached to it. Yeah. So that's one that does gets moved. It's it's an important, really, really important structural bone, but we don't move that bone by any muscles attaching to it. So it's an unusual situation in the body where we've got a significant bone there with no muscles attaching to a it. A significant bone, a very significant yeah. joint, but no direct muscular attachments. Yeah. In fact, yeah. you're making me think. I wrote an article for Massage and Body Work magazine about that joint an issue or two ago. But uh, uh-huh. I got to refresh myself on that tibia, uh, the tab, uh, rather the talus trivia. But yeah. you said the only bone in the foot isn't the isn't it the only bone in the body that doesn't have a muscle. You know, it may be. Yeah. Uh, so I, I well, no. Okay. Uh, I because there's the malleus incus and stapes uh, inside your actually, ear. I was. Five, um, sec- five seconds yeah. behind you. Yes, yeah, absolutely. My mother was an audiologist, so I'm always jumping there to those uh, those three. Inner ear bones. But yeah, uh, other than that, and I just I just don't know the rest of, of anywhere in the body, but it's probably true that that's the only ones um, that don't have other muscles attaching to them. So yeah, I'm sorry. You got me started. Yeah. I got to throw in one more. And, okay, let's have it. And I think it's the only bone that in anatomical position has its blood flow, flow go from the bottom up. It's only arterial blood supply is below it. So the blood percolates. The talus? The talus. We're talking about? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So it's huh. that's actually an issue in rehab. If you've broken it or shattered it from fire smoke jumping or something like that, Yeah. then you got to really think about blood flow for it so it can heal because it's percolating upwards into the bone. Interesting. Didn't know that one. Okay. See, you learn something new every day. So, uh, so a couple other things at this joint before we um, move on from it too. This is um, a lot of people don't hear this term a lot, but this joint between the distal tibiofibular syndesmosis and the talus is called a talocrural joint. Hard word to say. T-A-L-O-C-R-U-R-A-L. Talocrural joint. Talocrural. Talo leg joint. Yeah. And it often forms what we call a mortise and tenon type of, not tendon, but tenon, T-E-N-O-N, mortise and tenon structure, which is basically like a, you know, um, a, a round knob sticking up and a, and a depression for that knob to stick into. Um, I always, I learned about mortise and tenon structures when I was in uh, fifth grade, I think it was, Shop and class. I was building a model. Uh, no, actually, 
This was science fair. Oh. I was building a model of Stonehenge. Huh. And yeah, right. uh, the stones are built with mortise and tenon structures in there. So yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's like a little a, bump and a depression set to sit in. Uh-huh. So it's like a joint that uh distal joint yeah. you're talking about that where the mortise of the leg fits around the tenon of the talus, huh? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And we are going to talk about some injury things a little bit later on, but I just wanted to mention one thing about this uh, because it's really relevant here uh, in relation to what we're talking about. The talus is a little bit wider on the superior side than it is on the inferior side. And when your foot moves in dorsiflexion, that wide branch or the, the wide surface of the talus rolls up underneath the distal tibia and fibula and uh, as you move the foot farther into dorsiflexion. And if your foot is forced into extreme dorsiflexion, mm. let's take our smoke jumper example mm. that we had a moment mm. ago. Talk about somebody who lands from a parachuting accident with extreme dorsiflexion, maybe their weight is imbalanced or something like that. And that talus rolls up underneath the, the tibia and fibula far enough, it actually can spread them apart and cause a, a sprain or injury to that distal tibiofibular syndesmosis. And this is an, an injury called a high ankle sprain because it's not at the usual ligaments with ankle sprains, but it is uh, sometimes mistaken for them. But it, the, usually the cause is extreme dorsiflexion or extreme dorsiflexion with rotation of yeah, the ankle. Yeah, some kind time. of twisting. You could twist yeah. that tendon in the mortise too, yeah. spread those bones apart and sprain that ligament, that high yeah, ankle sprain. right. Absolutely. What are some of those ligaments so, uh, around there? Yeah, boy, we have a whole mess of ligaments around the ankle joint, but let's just focus on some of the key ones that are really important. Remember, we've got uh, with each of those small foot bones, you've got ligaments that are holding them to each other. But we are, um, you know, mainly when we talk about ankle problems, looking at the ligaments on the medial side of the ankle and those on the lateral side as the primary ones where we see, you know, problems occurring most frequently with them. On the medial side, there's a complex of four different ligaments that all kind of blend together. Most, mostly, if you look anatomically, they're really kind of meshed together and they form kind of a triangle shape. So they're referred to as the deltoid ligament complex. Deltoid meaning the, like the Greek letter delta, mm -hmm. the triangle yep. shape. And uh, the deltoid ligaments on the medial side of the ankle are, are very, quite strong and very resistant to to motions. And that's one of the reasons you don't see as many ankle sprains on the medial side of the ankles because that deltoid ligament complex is, is really quite yeah. strong. And uh, on the opposite side, where you actually need greater stability, uh, those ligaments aren't quite as large. So I'm not sure why that is the case, but that's one of the reasons that we see a lot more frequency of, of lateral ankle sprains because there's three key ligaments that resist excessive inversion of the foot on that side, yeah. and that's the anterior talofibular ligament. That's the main one that gets injured in most ankle sprains. Uh -huh. Second most common, and again, anterior talofibular. Those ligaments' names always tell you what they connect. So talofibular is going to connect the talus and the fibula, and then uh, and that, that ligament goes kind of in an uh, anterior to, to posterior direction from the fibula down to the talus, and then almost straight up and down, superior inferior direction is the calcaneofibular ligament. And that'd be running from the calcaneus to the yeah. fibula. And then one running from the fibula in a posterior direction back to the talus also, and that is the posterior talofibular ligament. So those three on the lateral side uh, are sort of trying to give you additional stability 
um, mostly against excessive inversion movements on that and side. So you could think of them maybe, tell me if this is accurate, you can think of them as kind of radiating off of that distal end of the fibula, like your lateral malleolus are kind of splaying off of that in three directions. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And uh, mechanically too, just another thing to, to, to note here about the ankle and its stability is, you know, probably the majority of people have at some point, you know, twisted their ankle or stepped down funny and doing something that they call turning their ankle or something like that. And uh, most of the time that's, we're going to talk about some of the foot mechanics in, in a moment here, but most of the time that's twisting your foot yeah. inward or into inversion. Right. One of the reasons, the other reasons you don't twist your foot out into eversion anywhere near uh -huh. as much is that the fibula extends farther distally than the tibia does on the medial side. So the foot is prevented from going out into excessive eversion out to the lateral side because of that fibula being more distal than the tibia is on the medial side. And, and there's another reason I'm thinking of too, and that is that you have, most of us have another leg on that side. So this is yeah. uh, kinesthetically, mm -hmm. it's more of a covered direction while that out, you know, falling yep. outward mm -hmm. or even, you know, having to stabilize right. outward, we don't have anything out there to catch us. So it ends up rolling the foot more yeah. that way. Right. Yeah. Cool. So talk, tell us a little bit about, let's talk about some motions here. What, what motions do we have that we're m mostly looking at here in this area? Well, you've mentioned, uh, you've mentioned dorsiflexion and plantar flexion. So dorsiflexion mm -hmm. is pulling your toes up toward your knee. Plantar flexion would be pointing your toes down away from your knee. And that's a movement that happens of the, essentially the talus moving between that tibia and fibula. It's that little, you mentioned it being wider in front. So when you point your toes, the narrow part's there and your ankle's pretty loose. That's great for toe off when you need to adapt. And then when you pull your toes up towards your knee in dorsiflexion, that actually gets snugged up real tight there because of the wide part of the talus between those two bones where that mortis and tendon kind of locks down like a sprung stabilizer. And so then you have a lot of stability in, uh, in actually, sorry, I may have said it backwards, in toe off, in that phase of the gait cycle, when you're pushing off the toe, there's lots of stability if you're in dorsiflexion. Yeah. Uh, did I say that right, Whit? Okay, great. Yeah. yeah. I'm my fact checker here. Thank you. So we don't get too much hate mail. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And then. Yeah. So think about the position that your yeah. foot is in, you know, um, and, and so you can, you can kind of envision that your toes are extended in, in that push off phase, the toes are extended and the foot is, is moving in the direction of plantar flexion, but it's, it's dorsiflexed for the most part to give yeah. you that spring load and the power and, and forward That's propulsion. Right. Now a lot, yeah. uh, we're going to talk, we're going to talk about problems, but there's two things that could make it hard to dorsiflex. Dorsiflexion is hugely important. People really notice it when they don't have much dorsiflexion, even more than when they don't have plantar flexion for various reasons. But there's two things that could make it hard. And in my book, I call them type one or type two. I don't think that's any kind of official designation. Uh, type two, type one is where something in back of the leg is making it hard to dorsiflex. Basically the sural complex, the soleus, the the gastroc, et cetera, posterior curl fascia, not able to allow that lengthening you need to dorsiflex. And the other... So this would be kind of a, a muscular or soft tissue restriction to dorsiflexion because those tissues are not elongating fully. That's the mm -hmm. idea on that. Or you could, yes, contractile tissue, let's say, because the other one's soft tissue too. Mm -hmm. The right. type two would be an inability of the tibia and fibula to adapt around the talus. So they don't widen enough, you don't spring enough to allow the talus to go to full dorsiflexion. And you get like a jamming sensation uh -huh. there in the front for that. 
Yeah. Okay, so the two things that can keep you from having full dorsiflexion, at least structurally. And then yeah. you had some thoughts about subtalar motions. Yeah, so we've talked about the talocrural joint being that joint between the talus and distal tibia and fibula. And the next uh, important joint in the foot ankle complex is called the subtalar joint. Oh, yeah. So that sub meaning below and talus referring to the, the talus. So this is the joint down below the talus where it's articulating with other foot bones there. And that, this um, joint, very important also for foot mechanics. And the two motions that primarily occur at the subtalar joint are inversion, where the sort of plantar surface of your foot turns in a medial uh, direction, and eversion, where plantar surface is turning uh, outward in a more lateral direction. So inversion and so you're eversion. You're saying those are, those are mostly uh, happening uh, right below the talus. Now, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I uh, actually get excited about this stuff. We're like so deep in the geekdom here. Especially once you get into the yeah. foot joints, those little movements get really arcane and very cool because they explain a lot of stuff. So that in, turning yeah. your foot in and turning the foot out, you're saying a lot of that's happening right there at that joint between the calcaneus and the uh, talus and between the talus and then the, you know, the other bones below it. Very cool. Yeah. And I do want to reiterate as we talk about this that these are not absolutely pure uh -huh. motions, meaning there's really some different planes of movement that are occurring at each one of these things. It's not like straight, uh, only sagittal plane movement or only frontal plane movement. There is really some kind of altered dynamics of that movement, which is absolutely necessary because your foot is trying to adapt to differences in ground surface and, and you know, walking on rocks and stepping in holes and doing all kinds of things. Your foot has to be adaptable to, to, uh, changes in the ground surface down below. So you can't just have these pure single plane movements mm -hmm. that don't have some other degrees. Of, uh, and we'll get into this in just a couple minutes as we begin to talk about pronation and supination, because those are some uh, confusing topics, but they help illustrate why these are yeah. not pure. Sometimes it's uh, drawn out as yeah, being around an oblique axis that goes through all three planes. Yeah, But even that might be an abstraction because if you... Capanti does a cool thing where he draws the joint surfaces as little barrels and knobs, and you see that that, that surface yeah. there is so complex between those two bones that it's not going to move just like a plain hinge in any one direction. There's all sorts of little yeah. permutations it does. And that joint's yeah. uh, adaptability, the subtalar joint, features prominently in a lot of different systems. It's not a whole lot of movement typically, but it's, the, it's essentially the first joint up from the ground. If you look at you know weight bearing yeah. in a normal standing or landing position, that's the first joint that's adapting. And so people like Gary Gray and his calves method, and then people that have kind of riffed off of his system like James Earls, things like that, see it as the joint that sets up the potential for the rest of the body's adaptation in walking or running. Mm -hmm. It's almost like that kind of... Uh you know, idea of stack yeah. of blocks and you get that first block a little bit tilted and that's going to magnify some of those effects throughout the rest of the body. The higher up you go just because of the way forces and torque works, um, those things will be uh, exaggerated later on through the I'm going to underline that tilted part because it could be tilted or it mm -hmm. could be uh, inadaptable. But that's when we get mm -hmm. to like pronation myths and such, the tilted one is relevant there. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's, let's, 
dive into that a little bit about pronation and supination, because these are some terms that are, my experience has been in trying to teach people about these concepts for many years is that there's a great deal of confusion yes. out there about pronation and supination, what they are and what they, how they're defined yes. and what actually happens there. So, so let's look at that a little bit. So first thing is pronation. Let's start with pronation because that's the big one. Everybody hears about a, a lot. You know, are you over pronating? Are you hyper pronating or that sort of term? What is that? Are you a pronator? Really Do you need these shoes because you're a so, pronator? Do you need inserts because you're a pronator, et cetera? Yes. Yeah, something like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing to remember is that everybody mm. pronates when hopefully. they um, move with their foot and ankle yes. complex, hopefully, yes. In normal gait mechanics, pronation is normal. The problem is overpronation, or the potential problem is overpronation. But what, what does that actually mean? So let's explore that a little bit. Pronation is a combination of movements in different planes. So we've talked about two of those planes of movements. Dorsiflexion and plantar flexion happen in that sagittal plane. And then we've also talked about inversion and eversion, where the foot rolls inward or the foot rolls outward. But as you mentioned a moment ago, the, the motion of the foot is kind of on a diagonal plane. And we talk about it being in an oblique axis. And there's actually another component to that movement, which is, and this one's hard because it, it uses terms that don't seem to work at the foot the same way. But if your foot uh, if you're standing uh, straight with your um, body in an anatomical position, your foot is pointing forward. If you simply, with your foot on the ground, turns your foot out to the side, so your toes are now pointing more laterally in your foot, this is what we frequently yeah. call turnout. That uh, motion is called abduction. So uh, abduction of the foot is when your foot turns out. And uh, likewise, the opposite of that adduction would be when it turns in, often what we refer to as a pigeon-toed um, gait, for example. Pigeon-toed, bear, so bear paw. Pronation. Yeah. I've heard it called. Yeah, that bear kind of curve in the end of the huh. foot like bears do. Or duck foot, uh, uh, pigeon and duck foot, yeah. turning out the other way. Yeah. 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 Right. So uh, go out, walk in the snow or the sand or something like that, and you can often see indications of those kinds. Of, I have a, a very significant um, abduction turnout, especially on, on one side uh -huh. of my feet. Very evident when I walk in the snow. Um, but in any event, so pronation is a combination of dorsiflexion, eversion, yeah. and abduction. So if you kind of envision your foot sort of pulling up, toes toward the knee, turning a little bit out, with plantar surface turning a little bit outward and the, the toes kind of pointing out a little bit away from the body, that is a, a sort of a dynamic direction or movement of yeah. pronation. So we think about, uh, talk about pronation being a dynamic movement as Thank opposed you. to a static position. I was position. about to say that. So, so but yeah, just uh, to continue really the animal concept. analogy, maybe you have a duck with its toes pulled up and a little bit, uh, yeah. but yeah, you're, like you're saying, it's a movement. <clears throat> it becomes useful when you think about it as a movement, as a as opposed to a static position yeah. or something like that. Hey, yeah, and I just had a thought. That's too. really important. You're, I mean, we have this outline that we should put in the show notes so that people can really follow along. But I'm thinking maybe a diagram or two, or for sure a link to like uh, Drew's a trail guide to movement, the books a discovery book that has some really cool stuff about all these motions in there. Absolutely. That's a great idea. Yeah. So we'll, we'll put that in there and include that as well. So you can get a sense of that. So 
um, you know, overpronation is when you are moving either too far uh. or too fast during the gait cycle through those motions. So pronation is a normal part of your foot mechanics. When yes. your heel hits the ground first, then the weight goes onto the flat surface of your foot and then to your toes and you push off. There is a natural rolling towards the inside of your foot that is perfectly normal. And that is the pronatory movement. That's pro mm -hmm. natural pronation. But if you roll too far toward the inside of your foot or too fast toward the inside of your foot during that gait cycle, that would be And some of the debates are around how do you define too far or too fast? Is it a certain yeah. amount of number of degrees? Yeah. Or a certain number, you know, that kind of question. How do you how do you approach that one, Whit? Yeah, I I have seen a lot of different discussions about that and, and I don't have a rule that I rigidly adhere to. It's it's kind of like a that thing about what well, what is it? Somebody was saying like um was in relation to well, I know it when I see yeah. it, you know, kind of thing. Like uh, there's all kinds of things, you know, like looking at uh, wear patterns on the bottom of the shoe, you know, looking at um, a person's gait cycle. A lot of people can compensate for degrees of of over pronation and not ever have a problem with it. So you know, it's kind of like uh, it's a hard thing to actually measure and and look at. Uh, but you can see sometimes, uh, and we're going to talk about this too, that there's some other things that do likely result from overpronation because it definitely changes the me mechanics and, and the weight distribution and, and the force distribution to right. the lower extremity I think during gait. Can I share with you my thoughts on that really quickly? Um, I Absolutely. Have started, yeah, I, have I was going to ask you that. past bunch of years, I've avoided the term overpronation because it does imply that there's some sort of ideal amount. And that's very debatable. Just you know, mm -hmm. based on anatomical studies of averages and things like that, it's pretty hard to say this is amount is okay and that amount's not. Or even this shoe wear pattern is good and the shoe pattern is bad, because it depends on how you're measuring it. Is it symptoms? It turns out that symptoms don't correlate with pronation in a significant way. And there's been a num. It's been a huge debate because most of our coaching and thinking about uh, gait. And stance and ankle has to do with let's control pronation, not overpronate. But it turns out when you do, when you really yeah. look to see, okay, so what problems are these people having? It's there's not many in particular. Arch height doesn't seem to be associated mm -hmm. with uh, symptomology. And any measurement yeah. is yeah. basically postulated over an ideal anatomical neutral, which may or may not have much relevance to actual life anyway. So I've started here's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm skipping to the punchline. Is that okay? No, I want to hear that. Yes, I was gonna, that was going to be on my next question. So how do you so how do you, how do you um, frame it? How do you I frame, frame it? it yeah, uh, and this is actually a, a philosophy I'm playing with in a number of areas in my life. Maybe the problem isn't over pronation; it's uh, a lack of ability to go the other way. Yeah, maybe it's not that you're stuck in pronation, which is the classic model says that it's, you know, the foot has a position that it can't get out of. Maybe it's just that you don't have enough supination available to you. So yeah. in terms of gait mechanics, um, when a person lands at foot strike, um, because one of the, you know, the, the primary uh, sort of muscle that's given as um, functionally resisting over pronation yes. is tibialis posterior because of its angle of pull, right. it sort of, of puts on the brakes. Yep and keeps you from rolling too far over on the inside yep. of your foot. So are you suggesting then that, you know, how do we, how do we frame that or That's look good. at that in terms of like, 
Well, if a person is, you can kind of see sometimes people, you know, walking and they're really rolling yeah. over onto the inside of their foot and there's other mechanics, things that are not happening in the foot. Is that necessarily because they're not supinating enough or maybe the tibialis posterior isn't uh, putting on the brakes enough or how do you, enough how do you compared like to what it's compared to an anatomical ideal? Yeah. If we see it rolling in, that's already assessed it according yeah. to a plumb line say, and listen, that's my background. And there's, I'm not saying that position is nothing. I'm just saying it's not everything. And our conventional models say, let's look oh, at yeah. the alignment. Mm -hmm. And if we get it aligned, we're good. And sometimes that's the case, but it turns out that a lot of people aren't good, even after you do manage to teach them or correct them or put inserts in that keep them in an anatomical uh, alignment. A lot of people still have symptoms, so it's not that alignment is everything. And so often what does seem to make a big difference yeah. is the ability to adapt, as you mentioned. So it, it's not like they don't have, uh, they're not mm -hmm. supinating enough in that, in that uh, weight-bearing phase. It says that we don't have enough supination available in the overall cycle, the overall ability to stand and balance. Now, my job, and too, that's that's mm -hmm. kind of strategic to my job as a manual therapist, because uh, I don't stack bones up and and get them all balanced and then push people out the door hoping they stay there. That's not my way of thinking about my work. I'm giving people options yeah. to move, and then enough awareness and body awareness and encouragement to move and use it that hopefully they that they stay healthy and keep, uh, mm -hmm. keep those things going. But that's not like, it's not to say the job is done. Yeah. If someone does have a situation where there's say so much movement there that they're hurting themselves, which could happen after an injury, say, if you sprain your ankle that way immediately and you have a pathological amount of movement. Yeah. I'm not going to say now you go make that pathological amount of movement the other way. I'm going to say, maybe that's a place for some say classic strengthening or some, alignment awareness training or those kinds of things, which we actually work into a lot of the hands-on therapists do, but we for sure do in my approach where we're, and then say structural integration, that's we're educating as much as we are repositioning, maybe even more. So that's where the role of yeah. education really comes in. Yeah. And I think that's so, yeah, so pertinent in there because <clears throat> this is a thing that we have oftentimes sort of defaulted to try to look for like the simple answer to many of these types of very complex yeah. biomechanical challenges. And, you know, one of the things that, that I really have kind of shifted my thinking about over the, over the decades really is that a lot of what we do with our manual therapy is not necessarily making those kinds of very significant tissue changes in the therapy session that all of a sudden, then that, like you said, the person walks out the door uh -huh. and then they are corrected something like foot mechanics is really hard to change because you're, you're reinforcing it with every mm. foot strike and everywhere you go. And so those kinds of things are often a very complex multifactorial problem. And maybe we can address certain components of that. Like you said, find some good ways to move and find some ways that encourage more uh, functional movement in combination with, you know, shoe inserts and, you know, all those other kinds of things as a, as a complex picture that might uh, change some things. But, you know, a lot of these problems lead to things that are difficult to undo. And we're going to talk about this in a moment when we talk about bunions uh -huh. and hallux valgus and things like that. If you're over pronating, you've already done a lot of the biomechanical damage that's really hard to undo. Um, Somehow I want so. to take the other side of the debate. What is it? It's it's that, yeah, I think patterns are hard to change, and maybe we can do biomechanical damage by spending too much time in one extreme. 
granted. Uh, and yet sometimes just a small change makes a whole lot of difference. And uh, it's often yeah. a waking up mm -hmm. of someone's possibility or their awareness, like just finding out that I can weight bear a little differently through my foot, or just the meditation of walking and pushing off slightly with a different awareness can really shift the way that someone's foot moves, but then also those kind of symptoms you're mentioning too. So just to, I want to put in a plug for the hopefulness as well as the difficulty yeah. of the situation. Well, and I think, yeah, you're we're, we're really kind of on the same track of, of talking about those things that reinforce um, yes. changing, for example, motor patterns or motor awareness or proprioceptive awareness in the body to change <laughs> those things, and they get repeated by doing them over and over again and, and correcting those things. And that's why it's it's so necessary to do something like that as opposed to having this idea that a person can come in and we're going to do right. something to their foot that's going to change it and that's going to make their mechanics magically, yes. you know, work great. Um, I'm just oh, not kind I, of on I that still boat any like, longer. So yeah. Uh, uh, hope for magic, but uh, there's lots of ways to get it. Yeah. There's lots of ways to get it. Sometimes it's slow magic, sometimes it's quick yeah. magic. I, I, yeah, I really like a lot of those ideas that you've talked about of enhancing proprioceptive awareness to then, yes. you know, tap into changes in motor patterns and things like that because of that increased awareness. Yes. And so you're getting That's the right. person working with you as opposed to you, you working on them, you know, just kind of a different sort of uh, mindset about that whole process or the way that's being done. Yeah, and I I can't help but do a little uh, semi-commercial. Well, uh, let's hear it. Yeah, Can you allow me that. Okay, so not only are we about to start our leg, knee, and foot principles class in a few weeks here. This is being September. You can join all the way through September of this year, and that's going to be recording later. So we do a deep dive into foot biomechanics. But if uh, the world situation allows, we're hoping to go back to Spain and walk a long section of the Camino de Santiago next year. Uh, and that, talk about a walking workshop. Oh, that's that's cool. what that is. It's a yeah. walking workshop where you, yeah, you get the repetitive, uh, long-term opportunity to really play with some yeah. different dynamics. So we do little morning mini classes and different, mm -hmm. these different dynamics. And then you go walk for the day with yeah. some companions and study that. And then we gather to debrief, usually over a glass of red uh -huh. wine or something along that way. I might have to sign up for that. That sounds so pretty nice. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Right. Knock on wood. I mean, st we'll stay tuned to see what the world situation yeah. allows, but that's what we're hoping cool. for next May. Anyway, thanks for of the course. commercial break. Yeah. Back to our show. So, um, well, I want to talk just briefly about a couple other well, uh, biomechanical terms that we've mentioned a couple of times and, and uh, define them a little bit and talk about how they play in relation to some of the things that the foot and ankle complex. Uh, in particular, yeah. the terms valgus and varus, which are oftentimes uh, okay. confusing for folks. So um, a valgus yeah. angulation um, is one in which the distal end of a bone deviates in a lateral direction. The distal end of a bone deviates in a lateral direction. And a varus angulation would be the opposite one, where the distal end of that bone deviates in a medial direction. So you can talk about valgus angulations of the elbow, of the knee, of the calcaneal uh, region of the toe, lots of different places where you may see those. But in the foot and ankle, they're pretty relevant because those forces then are not <clears throat> oftentimes moving ideally through the, the rest of the bony and connective tissue structures. So we've been talking a lot about overpronating, and a person who rolls over toward the inside of their foot during gait will most likely have a calcaneal valgus 
foot position during their weight-bearing stance where the distal end of the calcaneus is sort of deviating laterally and that's making them roll toward the inside of their foot. And uh, that would be um, a calcaneal valgus that, that leads to an overstress on some of those other soft tissues trying to, to help um, stabilize and support the foot and ankle complex. And, um, and we talked, we were uh, going to mention a few things too, like some other problems like bunions and hammer toes and bunions often, uh, well, I go just, ahead. yeah, no, oh, well, just in terms of valgus and varus, I, I, uh, your, your explanation is so clear. I even hate to touch it except to say that it's the same question that is, do those correlate with symptoms? And it turns out not as much as we thought especially it depends on the, the degree of load and the amount of repetition, like the level of performance mm -hmm. people are at. But there's been a lot of research into say Q angle yeah. of the knee and uh, how, it, how it might correlate with knee injuries. Of course, it seems like it only makes sense that if you got really valgus knees, like really knock knees, you're going to have more knee injuries. turns out that's, that it doesn't seem yeah. to be the case. And that some high level athletes have some pretty strong valgus or various patterns there. So it's it's back to the same sort of uh, asterisks, if they were, that yeah, our um, it, it, alignment isn't everything uh, anymore in terms of my approach, and I think in a lot of people's. And that's I think a really important takeaway to to emphasize, and I, I agree with you there that we've we've in the past looked at these things as pathologies, um, and the yeah. way I like to kind of look at it now is that it could be a factor that's relevant. But just because it's there doesn't mean it is something that needs to be fixed or changed or corrected. So like lots of other things that could be factors, we want to put that in the mix and think about, well, this might be playing a role in this uh, and see if it is. For some people, it, it's going to be a, a prominent factor. And for other people, it's not going to be as much. Um, yeah. But uh, right. I did want to, as we were talking about those concepts, you know, talk, touch base a little bit about some things with the the toes in the foot. Uh, you were going to talk uh -huh. to us some more about some other things here. I'm going to mention bunions and some other things that happen. And that's mm -hmm. often a result of of something called hallux valgus, which is the great toe or hallux, especially when your foot moves into excessive pronation that forces the distal end of the toe in a more lateral direction, as does often mm -hmm. wearing of really narrow toe box shoes, you know, that sort of causes the distal end of that hallux to be deviating in a lateral direction. And that pushes the proximal end toward the middle side of your foot, which often rubs on your shoe and produces a bunion. So those things are often related. Although there's, again, a lot of questions in some of the literature about how much these are causative factors, like the shoe wear being causative factors, how much genetics is a causative factor. And I think we're we're kind of recognizing it's it's not as simple as we may have once thought. It's it's not as simple, but uh, certainly I was getting tired of wearing my pointy cowboy mm -hmm. boots because they were pulling my toes in, and giving me a big old yeah. bunion there. So I started wearing my ballet slippers at night, and that didn't help at all. They were pretty yeah. narrow too. <laughs> but the, certainly shoes uh, shoes could be a yeah. factor in that, and genetics and the bunion yeah. thing. But I'm thinking like I'm. There's also, as you mentioned, a connection between pronation and bunions. And if you stand up, uh, you can feel it, listeners, and you too, if you want, you stand up, you can feel it. I'll just guide you through a little uh, tack or a sensate experience of that. 
if you stand up and you put your feet straight ahead and then you lean forward, your feet basically keep you from falling on right. your nose. Mm-hmm. Your feet are more or less straight. And a lot of that weight for most people, a certain significant amount of that will be in that head of the first metatarsal there. So that's it's like the, the base of the big toe is what takes a lot yeah. of that weight when you lean forward with straight feet. Now, if you go ahead and turn your feet out like the duck foot thing, and then you lean forward, you find that something different happens. You have to pronate a little bit. And that that head of the first metatarsal takes even more weight. In fact, it tries to migrate toward the midline to get, to act like a big toe, as it were, to keep you from falling forward. So that leg rotation, knee rotation, hip rotation, tibial torsion, uh, you know, the foot rotate, tibial movements, all those things, if they don't allow your foot to come somewhat toward the midline, that bone will try yeah. to, mm-hmm. to try to, to support you there. And that's part, maybe part of the functional contributions to that bone yeah. pattern. And then if it wasn't complex enough, have a seat if you're standing up. When you, if you can't dorsiflex, if you have either that type one or that two limitation where you can't bend your ankle very much into dorsiflexion, you can cheat by uh, pronating. It'll essentially force the movement down a joint or mm-hmm. so so that your knees come in toward the midline and you get lower in your squat, but you're essentially pronating instead of dorsiflexion. Flexing yeah. there. And like you said, that can be, it seems, you know, biomechanically, it can be a force that will push you toward a bunion situation too. So those are, we're seeing those kind of, you know, more complex uh, biomechanical compensations when people might have some movement limitations or movement restrictions, and then they sort of yeah. orient you in those directions away from those. And and some of that may be, you know, pain avoidance. I'm thinking in particular of like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, backpacking trips that I've been on early on when you start to get a hot spot or a little bit of blister in your foot, and then you have to change foot mechanics yeah. because you're trying to avoid the pressure from your shoe from from a friction blister and that, you know, that really changes those foot mechanics. And then all of a sudden some other things start like, like, Hey, this isn't how we're supposed to be walking kind of thing. There yeah. You go. Is the structure determining function at that yeah. point or is the function determining the way you're using your yeah. structure to go back and forth? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And then, uh, hammer toes, we should mention too. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, hammer toes again is, can be it, it's complex and I'll go into it a bunch in that course I mentioned there but it's you could think of it as the soft tissue pulling the digit pulling the toe from both above the foot and below the foot mm-hmm. and since it can't both flex and extend at the same time it, it, as a whole toe it buckles can't telescope either can't just shorten itself so that it ends up buckling yeah and then that loss of adaptability uh, in the flexors and the extensors of the toes means that it will get more or less fixed in that position. And then the all kinds of things can come from there. Yeah. But that, and all the, the longer structures there that buckling the toes cross the ankle. So certainly they can be related to ankle stabilization, ankle dynamics as well. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? And what? again, you know, uh, hammer toes become another significant problem because, um, your footwear and everything isn't really designed for your toes to be flexed inside your shoe. Um, Uh and you lose the capability for especially proper force distribution during the push off phase of gait. And, and so you're kind of losing some of that mechanical push that you've got from the toes as well as, you know, they're now kind of squinched up inside shoe where you oftentimes, you know, see, you know, friction problems with, with that, that are not designed for, for the way your foot's in the, in the footwear. Yeah, right. 
And so we used to think about it like, let's just go lengthen those things. Let's go stretch them out like the rubber band. Yeah. And uh, probably the, the, again, the evidence doesn't support we're changing down to the molecular level, those collagen molecules. But there's certainly a lot we can do to help people have a sense of greater movement through their toes. Yeah. Yeah. In that situation. And no matter what stage in the hammer toe story, because, you know, once some time goes on, it gets tougher and tougher to, uh, say, make them straight again. But you can always get some kind of movement and get some kind of relief. And then there's lots of creative things people do. You mentioned the shoe problems of the top of the toes mm-hmm. hitting the shoe or the ends of walking on the ends of the toes and they get sore. Yeah. There's lots, lots of different sorts of splinting and things like that that seem to have a great effect yeah. for people. And when we talked about, too, the sort of alignment challenges of like the, the hallux valgus or the other toes not being um, ideally aligned, um, you know, there's some other really good tools out there to help, the, you know, the t- yoga toes and the, the spacers that you put inside uh, in between your toes and things like that. If uh-huh. you have shoes that are wide enough in the toe box to um, allow for that, or you got you know, that. sandals or something like that, that you can wear that won't squish your foot while those things are in there. Um, or I've, you can spend some no shoe time with those. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've worked with some of those things in the past and, and found them to be really, really helpful and valuable. Cause I have what's called a, a Taylor's bunion, which is really, it's a, it's a bunion on the opposite side of the foot where the little toe, the small toe is deviating toward the midline. Um, yeah. and, uh, I found those things to be, uh, really quite helpful. And, um, I wear these tennis shoes all the time that, uh, from a company, this is a not a paid, uh, endorsement, but from, uh, <laughs> a tennis shoe company called ultra A L T R A. And they look a little a nice goofy because box. they got a huge, really wide toe box, but man, they are the most comfortable shoes I've ever put on my feet and they feel, they feel really great. So, um, just, I wear these, uh, yeah. I wear these tennis shoes around inside my, they're like running shoes. I wear these running shoes inside my house when I'm working and even at my computer because they give me this kind of spring in my step and they make me feel kind of like alert and ready to, to jump up and do things. And, uh, believe it or not, it has an impact on mental function if I'm wearing the right shoes. No doubt. No doubt. And then certainly the way that feet in general, footwear being a part of that story, but the way the feet comfort and adaptability and support under us changes the way we do all kinds of things, including the way we look at the world and think and act. Yeah. So. Right on. That whole thing about where the, you know, the, the connection with the base of the ground and all that kind of stuff, there's there's some relevance in all that. So, well, what else? We, we got, got a couple there? of, yeah. well, we got a couple of issues, problems we didn't touch on before we wrap things up. Yeah. Plantar fasciitis slash fasciosis. What, mm-hmm. what should be said about that? Yeah, this is, boy, it's another one. Foot this dynamics. Is, yeah, this is a, this is a, a messy thing to get into with, with plantar fasciitis. And obviously we could spend a whole episode on that because there's. We did. That was number 24. I was going to say, I thought we had done that once before we had <laughs> got into that. So. Episode 24, we talked yeah. about that whole problem. How does it relate to ankle mechanics? Yeah. Think? So, you know, again, uh, I think a lot of times we may see chronic overuse in that connective tissue complex. And, and you talked earlier about that uh, type one limit to dorsiflexion. This is a good yeah. example of the critical importance of what, what we refer, uh, frequently referred to as the, the uh, plantar flexor sling. I've heard that term. We're talking about the gastrocnemius yes. complex down to the calcaneus, down to the whole bottom surface of the foot. And the, Some people the, extend that on up the hamstrings. Exactly, the, yeah. The the whole, fascia or whatever, yeah. Yeah, fascial connectivity through the those tissues there that can get pulled from other different regions or, or impact 
uh, the regions by not being appropriately transmitting their tensile loads through those areas. So that's mm -hmm. why it's important, I think, to address a lot of tissues of the entire lower extremity when we're trying to address something like plantar fasciitis, because there are tensile loads that are transmitted through many of those other uh, tissues in there. So, um, you know, we're seeing this as more of a chronic overuse kind of degenerative problem with that uh, connective tissue as opposed to the its term indicating, uh, you know, more of an inflammatory type of reaction in there. But there certainly could be inflammatory components to that uh, from the, the tissue irritation and tissue overuse, especially, you know, where it's pulling on the attachment to the calcaneus. Go listen to episode 24 if you yeah. want to know more about that. We get into that in detail. Exactly. There. Yeah. So... Any of those others you want to make sure we mention, Whitney? Well, um, one other thing that I wanted to kind of call attention to uh, also is that, you know, and again, this is kind of like, you know, sort of my lens of, of looking at things is trying to often see what are likely what I call nociceptive drivers. You know, what are the things that are causing pain in these different regions? And so frequently I see instances where people have pain on the bottom surface of their foot and immediately jump to ideas that they have something like plantar fasciitis happening when in fact there are a lot of other possibilities such as you know nerve entrapment problems like in the tarsal tunnel the nerves feeding down to the bottom surface of the foot can give pain in the exact same places as plantar fascia problems and uh, you know that some of those more distal cutaneous nerves can get entrapped by like the quadratus planti muscle underneath there in, uh, in uh, Baxter's neuropathy. So these are a couple of mm. different nerve entrapment problems that may also exist around there. So I always like to, to look for a variety of different solutions and see if they fit a particular pattern of what might be really driving the, the nociceptive sensations coming out of there so we can kind of you know, make a, a treatment approach that will address that appropriately. That's great. And yeah, and I remember you talking about Baxter's neuropathy and those kind of things in that episode 24 too. So that's relevant yeah. to this foot pain yeah. it, uh, question we're doing today and the ways the ankle can affect the foot mechanics Yeah, there. And so I, I don't know, I'm just thinking in summary, a lot of what I'm doing is making sure, I mean, uh, dorsiflexion is so key. Dorsiflexion yes. is like the king or queen of that, of the foot movements and if people have dorsiflexion, they end up uh, moving in a way that the foot's happy with often. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the compensations people do, where there's a lot of pronation or a lot of things with the toes, sometimes they're just a way around a lack of dorsiflexion Yeah, so many times. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say that for everybody, but that's certainly the, the, the place I start with people is like, do they have dorsiflexion? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then similar is true in terms of like recovery from a bad sprain or you mentioned a high ankle sprain you know, up in the leg or breaks, boot top breaks, different, you know, foot injuries or ankle injuries. A lot of the recovery process uh, involves finding movements that we didn't have and uh, protecting, as you mentioned, the body protecting against the movement that was painful. Like oftentimes it is that inversion sprain rolling out of the ankle. So often giving people options for movement, helping them realize they have a whole foot under them and they don't have to just rely on one part of the foot, uh, opens up a lot of people, uh, possibilities for people that are recovering from an injury as well too. Yeah. Right. So what do you, what do you say? What's important for you to, for people to take with them? I, you know, this is one of those places where I think, um, it's really valuable to have just sort of even a, a fundamental understanding of some of the key principles of mechanics of this region, mm. because because of our weight bearing and the way in which the the 
the loads are transmitted from the foot and ankle complex through the rest of the body. In terms of what we tend to see as primary problems in this area, I do think it's really valuable to have at least some some basic uh, conceptual ideas of, of how the whole foot and ankle complex functions biomechanically and how some of those forces might be um, you know, altered or, or not working in an ideal fashion to kind of see what tissues might be absorbing a lot of those um, stresses inappropriately. So um, yeah, that's, that's the kind of plug for, for, you know, learn some biomechanics and learn some, uh, some kinesiological fundamentals about this area. Cause it's, it's, it's kind of relevant to what we're doing there. Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, well, we'll um, wrap up there for today with our foot and ankle complex um, topic and probably revisit this and some other things a little bit down the road. But we do want to say a big thank you to our closing sponsor today who is Books of Discovery. And uh, they have certainly been a, been a part of the massage therapy education field for over 20 years with thousands of schools around the world teaching with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. And in these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. And they like to say learning adventures start here. They, Books of Discovery, sees that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. Check out their collection of e-textbooks, and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where thinking practitioners, listeners, thinking practitioner listeners say 15% by entering thinking at checkout. And we'll put a link into that trail guide to the movement book, which is a great way to go and see those kind of movements that Whitney and I were talking about. Yes, absolutely. And we do want to say again, a thank you to all our sponsors. So Stop by the uh, sites for handouts, show notes, transcripts, and any extras over there. And again, we do thank all of you listeners for hanging out with us today as well and uh, picking up hopefully some valuable tips for you there. Um, you can find links to those uh, resources on our sites over at uh, my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can they find that for you? Advancedtrainings.com. Advancedtrainings.com with a dash or without. If you have questions or things you want to hear us talk about, email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media, just my name, Till Luca. How about you, Whitney? Also over on social under my name on Twitter at Whitlow. And if you will, rate us on Apple Podcasts as it helps other people find the show. And you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to be listening. Please do share the word and tell a friend the, about the show. And of course, if you're unable to find us in any of those locations, you can tune your kitchen microwave to 450 gigahertz and pick us up right there. That explains that popping sound I hear in the background, that popcorn back there. Exactly. Yeah, at 450 gigahertz in. also. That's right. Cool. Yeah. All righty. So we'll uh, see you again, I think, in two weeks, right? Two weeks right. And again, check okay. out those show notes. We'll put those links in there. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Whitney. Very good. Thank you, sir. <laughs>